to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your host, Taylor Scollin. Sarah Bartnika is off this week. So Canada's population is growing quickly, really quickly. Last month, we surpassed the 40 million mark, and we're growing faster than any other G7 country. Between 2016 and 2021, we've grown twice as quickly as the U.S., and the reason for that growth is simple. Immigration. StatsCan reported that of the growth we saw in 2022, around 95% of it was due to immigration. And this is by design. By 2025, the federal government wants to add 500,000 new permanent residents to Canada every year. So how our immigration system works matters quite a bit. But a growing number of economists and experts are flagging that it might not be working so well, at least right now. One of those people is Mikhail Skuderud, a professor in the economics department at the University of Waterloo and the director of the Canadian Labor Economics Forum. Mikhail has argued that the economic case for immigration, and I should emphasize that he's not talking about the humanitarian or moral case, but the economic case for our immigration policy has begun to break down as Canada has tried to scale up the number of people coming here. Today, he joins me on the podcast to explain exactly how our immigration system works and why, in his view, it started to fail. Mikhail, thank you for joining us on Free Lunch. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Okay, so I want to start with a very basic question here. How does the Canadian immigration system actually work? How do we decide who gets in, what the skill levels are? Just give us a broad overview of how this functions. Yeah, so I mean, but part of my expertise is is really not as an economist, but as somebody who spent a lot of years following how this system has evolved, and 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 that is a big time commitment because it's it's a very complicated system and has become much more complicated over time. Uh, so at the highest level, there essentially are three branches to the immigration systems or three broad pathways that, that migrants enter Canada as new permanent residents. They are a human, humanitarian program. So these are mostly refugees where the objective there is, of course, to meet, you know, international humanitarian commitments. The second branch are family class immigrants. So the objective there is to reunite people with people that are living in here, recent immigrants that have arrived. And the third and the biggest uh, stream or pathway are is the economic class immigrants. And the, the objective there very clearly is to try to leverage immigration to, to somehow improve the Canadian economy and, and not just you know produce good economic outcomes for the immigrants. That's very much about humanitarianism, it's it's in that sense distinct from humanitarianism because it's sort of about us that are already here. How do we leverage immigration to improve the well-being of of, of the folks that are already here? Um, and and so that that over time has become the biggest part. Now we could get into more complexity com- within each of those branches. Of course, there's many programs. The one I tend to focus more on is the economic class programs. I think it would be good to stay on that for a moment because I'm curious about how, you know, I assume that there's a a working theory behind we're going to let in X number of people with certain skills and that somehow is going to lead to a better economy. Maybe if you could just outline what that theory is and then how it gets translated into our policy, that might be helpful. Okay. So... 
I think there is, for the most part, a, a pretty broad consensus, at least historically, although we're seeing the policy shift in a different direction in recent years that we can talk about later and that I've been quite critical about. You know, historically, the consensus was very much that we're going to try to leverage immigration, economic class immigration, to kind of boost the average living standards, economic living standards of Canadians, including the new immigrants. And, and the best measure we have of that, for sure, is GDP per capita. We sort of think about calculating the size of the overall Canadian economy. That's the, the gross domestic product. And then we just say, well, if we if we were, in theory, to divide that total economic pie equally between everybody, so everybody gets equal size slice, how big is that average slice? And what we want to do is make sure that when we're adding immigrants to the population, the pie is going to get bigger, for sure. There's no question about that. When you add more people, as long as those people are producing something, the pie gets bigger. Right. But what happens to the size of the average slice? And in theory, it's possible that the average slice slice gets smaller. It's possible it gets bigger. And in theory, it's possible it stays exactly the same. Uh, so what do we do in Canada? Here's what we do. Uh, and this has been around for, you know, well, the, the, the programs, as I'm going to describe it to you, started in January 2015. The name of it is the Express Entry System. And okay. here's how it works. Applicants enter, have to qualify as being, you know, eligible by satisfying the requirements of one of these programs. There are many of them, the Canadian Experience Class, the Provincial Nominee Program, the Federal Skilled Worker Program. There's lots of these programs. Yeah. Those are kind of like, think of a university that has a grade point average that you need to satisfy just to put your application in. That's what those are like, those programs. They say, you need to meet these criteria to be eligible. Once you're eligible, we'll take your application. The application gets put in an applicant pool. Just like a university takes all the applicants, puts them in an applicant, applicant pool. And then it says, well, how many spots have we got? And we're going to somehow rank the candidates. That's what they do. And it's called the express entry pool. And they rank the candidates. Now you say, well, how do you rank immigrants? These are people that want to come here. And well, because it's an immigration class program. What we say is what we're going to try to do is select or prioritize the applicants who have the highest expected earnings. Why is earnings important? Well, we know that roughly two-thirds of GDP are people's earnings. You know, two-thirds of GDP is value being produced by workers. Mm. And their earnings are not a perfect indicator of their, their contribution to the economic pie, but it's pretty good. It's a, it's a pretty good indicator. So what you want to do is you want to make sure, if you think about just like basic statistics of how averages work, if you have an existing average and you add a person to the average who's above the average, that's going to tend to pull, or not tend to, it will pull the average up. If you add a person to the to the, the pool and or the population and their earnings are below the existing average, it's going to pull the average down. And if their earnings are exactly what the existing average is, then nothing happens. So what you want to clearly do is you want to look at people in the applicant pool, their expected earnings, you want to rank them, and then you want to prioritize those folks whose expected earnings are above the average. How do you get their expected earnings? Well, you look at their characteristics, how much education they have, their language ability. We test them to see how well they speak English or French. Lots of different criteria that are used, and that's put into a point system 
called the Comprehensive Ranking System, the CRS. You can go online and you can actually put in your own characteristics. Even Canadians, for fun, can do this to see what hmm. points you would get. Um, and it's on a scale from zero to 600. And then what happens is every two weeks, the federal government announces a cutoff. And if your score in the pool as an applicant is above the cutoff, you're in. You get an, you'll get an email from the government, the IRCC, the immigration department says, you're, you're, you qualify per, for permanent residency. Um, let us know if you're still interested and then you'll get right. PR status. So that's essentially what happens. We prioritize the, the, the these people with, with high expected earnings. Okay. So when the government says we're going to have 500,000 people admitted per year by, I think 2025 was the, the target for that. Yep. Are all of those people coming in under this program, or is that a combination of the three? How, what, how does that break down? Great question. So um, you can go on. If you do a Google search of Canada immigration targets, the next three years are going to be 2023 to 2025. You will get a, a page, government site, which is going to list the targets, those numbers you just uh, said. By 2025, we're up to half a million. That's an easy one to remember. But it, it breaks the, that, those numbers down into these three branches. Humanitarian, how much of that half a million is humanitarian? How much of his family class? How much is um, economic class? It doesn't change those shares. The percentages doesn't change too much from year to year. Economic class has been increasing gradually over time. In those targets, about 60% is economic class. Okay. A little less than 20%. And actually, it is falling. With these new targets, the percent that goes to humanitarian class is falling. So it's it was around 20%. Now it's less. And family classes is staying about the same. Um, economic class increasing a little bit. Okay. And so if we're looking at, say, people here who are on temporary work visas or international students, are, is that... In addition to the, say, 500,000, that's a different pool of people? That's a whole different system. Okay. It's a whole different pool of people. Something interesting there, and this is where people get confused, and I understand the confusion. If you're not spending all, every day all day thinking about this stuff, sure, it's hard to keep track of. That's a whole different system. There's what we call the PR system, permanent residence, and there's what we call the TR system, temporary residence. Historically, these were kind of mutually exclusive groups. There wasn't, you know, the people in this pool of TR were not the same people in the PR pool. They were completely different people. That is, a, that is over time not, you know, no longer true. Increasingly, hmm. the people in the express entry pool are people living here as temporary residents, either hmm. foreign students or recently graduated foreign students and temporary foreign workers. Um, so there, it's becoming more and more complicated that, you know, those half a million people, and when we see the number of new permanent residents in any given year, a lot of those folks will already have been in Canada. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I know that you have been uh, critical online a little bit and in various other panels that I've seen of how the economic part of the immigration system has unfolded recently. Can you explain your criticism? I, I appreciate you, you making that clear, Blake, because I, I try very hard to do that myself, that the criticism really isn't about humanitarian or family yeah. class programs. In fact, I have argued and been pretty vocal that I, I'm, I think it's a problem that the humanitarian class share is falling. We don't talk about that, but I, I think that's a problem. 
where I am concerned about is the economic class programs. And what's happening is as we're increasing these immigration levels, then of course, what's going to happen is think about that applicant pool, the express entry pool. Every, what you're doing is you're ranking all the applicants by their expected earnings. There is an implicit, and the language isn't great. When you're talking about people, it's not nice to talk about quality of people. But uh, if you just bear with me, there is an implicit quality quantity trade-off there. That if you're going to increase the number of people selected, you have to dig, you know, reach deeper into the applicant pool. It's just like a university. If they want to increase the number of students they admit, if the applicant pool staying the same, you've got to get lower quality students um, sure. on the margin that are going to be admitted. That's a problem. That that's kind of a, a concern. That 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 that. So one way to deal with that, if you want high immigration levels and you want to maintain quality, the only way you can do that is to select better, to do a better job of predicting future earnings. And so that's something we've been kind of pushing for a long time, but nobody likes to talk about and has been getting no traction with the government is to say the the CRS, CRS system I described where we try to predict people's earnings in the future, it's far from perfect. At best, we are ex we're predicting a, um, people's earnings 10 years into the future after they arrive in Canada with about 20% accuracy. That's not good enough. There's all kinds of information we can use about applicants to try and predict how well they're going to do um, that we're not using. And we've made suggestions about what are some of those ideas about different information we could use. If we improve the selection, it is theoretically possible that we could increase the levels without compromising the average quality of new immigrants. Um, and, and that's something in this new paper, which I know you're aware of, that we, we've been talking about how, how that might be possible to do. Okay, so I, I get the logic of if we bring in people who have higher future earnings and we can predict those more accurately than we do now, then that is a, a pull up on GDP per capita in theory. Are there other factors at work there though? Like, I, you know, I think how most people are interacting with this issue now is through the lens of maybe the housing market or the healthcare system. Is there a uh, infrastructure issue on our end? Like our ability to absorb a certain number of people coming into the country every year? And then how does that relationship play out when it comes to overall wealth and, you know, GDP per capita. Yeah. So I began by talking about this question of, okay, we're trying to leverage economic immigration to boost GDP per capita. What do we think the effect is? You know, like just in, in historically, if you look at Canada's immigration system and the kinds of people that have been selected through those programs, what's been the effect? I think most economists, in fact, I would say all economists in Canada, academic economists in particular, that, that study Canadian immigration, all of them that I've ever spoken to would agree with the statement that probably what's, what happens is in the short run, when you increase immigration rates like we're doing now in a very significant way, in the short run, you're going to lower GDP per capita. And in the long run, probably not much happens positively or negatively. In the long run, immigration probably doesn't do much to GDP per capita. So why is that true? The way economists think about that is that we think production in the aggregate in a nation is largely 
determined by what we call constant constant returns to scale technology production. What does that mean? It just quite it's a pretty simple idea. The idea is that the amount of out we output we produce is a function of some inputs. The most important inputs by far are the labor input and the capital input. And constant returns to scale means that if you simultaneously increase the labor input and the capital input by some proportion, suppose you double them, what you can expect is that output will roughly double in the long run. So what that means is if you increase immigration, you increase the population by 1% year over year, but you can also increase the capital stock, capital meaning all the machinery, all the infrastructure, all the housing, everything that allows people to be productive, um, all the tools, all the machinery, everything, all the computers, this technology I'm sitting here using with you, that's part of our capital stock. If you also increase all that by 1%, then total output will go up by 1%. What will happen to the average uh, size of the slice of the economic pie? Absolutely nothing, right? On average, we're equally well off. We're no worse off, no better off. Here's the problem. Here's the rub with this. In the short run, of course, when we increase immigration by 1%, the capital stock doesn't increase by 1%. It increases by less than 1%. That's what we call capital dilution. The capital stock is diluted. There's less machinery, workers, computers per worker. Per worker, you know, on average, every worker has less stuff to use to allow them to be productive. And their housing is part of that. <laughs> um, and, and so that we hear a lot about housing because it's very visible to us. We pay a lot of attention to the housing market and we, we see those prices changing because there's websites that tell us what's happening to rents and what's, ha- but the, the, you know, what's happening to cap, the capital stock per worker in, in healthcare, what's happening to machines, uh, you know, the, the, all the technology, we, we, we don't hear as much about that, but clearly the same thing is happening. And that when, when each of us has less machinery and technology to use on average, then that makes us less productive. And that's what lowers in the short run GDP per capita. Hopefully, you know, that a cap. Now, here, here's the other bit. You said it's okay to get into details. This is where this gets yes. interesting. When you have a, a, an abundance of labor and a scarcity of capital, the value of new capital increases. The return to new capital investments increases because there's a lot of workers to complement that capital with. And so the, the incentive to invest in new capital goes up. So if interest rates stay the same, which they're not, unfortunately, at this period, which makes things even more complicated, but if interest rates are staying the same, then we should see a, a big increase in capital investment. And that's going to bring things into alignment, into balance. So that capital per worker stays the same. We're getting back to this constant returns to scale out result, right? Unfortunately, th- that adjustment process, what we call these frictions in capital markets, that takes time. And that's the pain. That's sort of the growing pain of massively increasing immigration that the government doesn't talk about, but is an economic reality for sure. You know, it strikes me that this is very different than what, you know, the typical person, myself included, will read about in most media outlets. Like we read a ton about labor shortages, not enough workers to go around. This is the first that I'm hearing about capital shortages, not enough capital to serve the labor that we have is is the labor shortage is that real are like are there bottlenecks in the labor market that can be addressed through this uh, ramp up of immigration or 
are we being is is this sort of a narrative that's being generated for perhaps other reasons? Yeah, so that that's a, a fantastic question. That that's been an area that I've been pretty vocal about over the past couple of years as we've we've seen this discussion about labor shortage crisis in Canada escalate. Yeah. Um, I struggle to understand that narrative. So just two facts. One is that that labor shortage, to the extent that exists, well, first, how do we measure it? We know how many job vacancies there are in Canada. Statistics Canada measures that. We know what the job, the skill requirements of the job vacancies are. I mean, these jobs that are trying, they're trying to fill are these jobs that, just, that require high school or less, relatively unskilled jobs, or these are, you know, skilled jobs that require university degrees, for example, in computer science. If you look at the data, what you see is that massive increase we saw in the beginning of 2021 in, you know, labor market tightness, the number of job vacancies per job seeker in Canada. It was almost entirely, I put out on Twitter a chart of this, almost entirely driven by labor market tightness in the low wage, low skill, in jobs requiring high school or less. Almost none of it is happening within the labor markets requiring a university, or not even university, requiring anything more than a high school diploma. It's very much in the low skill market. Okay. If you now look at what's happening to wages, hourly, real hourly wages, what you see is that we're actually, they're flat. And in most recent months, it's declining. Labor, real wages of low-skilled workers in Canada are falling. Those two things are entirely inconsistent with a labor shortage story. Only way that can happen is if the supply of labor is growing faster than the demand for labor. That's the only way you can get wages falling and employment going up. Right. And so, you know, there clearly is an interest for business to have, you know, if I'm running a business, what do I want? This is pretty intuitive. If I own a business and I'm sympathetic, like if I, you know, if I'm running a business, I'm trying to survive, I'm trying to turn a profit. The best thing I can have is a long queue of applicants standing out my door, begging for a job and fighting amongst each other about who's going to get the job fighting amongst each other and saying, I'll work for this wage. I'll work for this bidding against undercutting each other's wage offers, what they're willing to work. Cause that's going to keep my, my labor costs down. Right. So I understand businesses are going to advocate lobby for, you know, increased access to low skilled workers through immigration, whether it's a temporary resident program or permanent resident program, but it just isn't good. If what you care about is productivity and wages and low and low wage jobs in Canada, that's not the right policy. The right policy is let markets do what, I mean, if you're a capitalist, (laughs) even markets, you let markets do what they're good at. And that is they will tend to, if there's a scarcity of these low skilled workers, then the firms who rely on them will compete for them. And those workers will get allocated to the places, the firms where they're most efficient, where their skills, their limited maybe skills can be used most effectively. That's healthy. That's good for an economy. So we should right. be celebrating these la- these tight labor markets in low-skilled sectors, not not thinking that they need to be solved. This is a blessing that we should be celebrating. Interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, you talk about wages. I think this is another common concern that people have when they hear about these immigration numbers is what is the effect of that on their wages? I mean, what is the evidence around that? Is our wages being suppressed by these high immigration targets? Yeah. So people say it's complicated and we don't really know. No, I, I think that's, that's, you know, not doing ourselves justice as economists who have studied this for decades. I think we know more than we'd like to admit. And it's not that complicated. 
Okay. So here's the, the story as I see it. And I think you'd be hard pressed. I mean, it, you can put this podcast out there and we'll see what, if people disagree with me, but here's what I propose is pretty much the consensus in the literature, my reading of the empirical literature. Workers whose skills are direct substitutes for the new immigrants, they're not going to be better off as a result of immigration because they're, they have to compete. If they're identical, if they're, what they're offering in the labor markets is exactly the same skill set as what the new immigrants come with, then, then you have to compete for a job. That's not good. I don't want that. that that's not going to help me bargain up a higher wage. But if, on the other hand, I have different skills than the immigrants, then we know through the theory that there can be complementarities, that having this coworker who's brings something different to the table than what I have can actually make me more productive. A very simple example of that is a very low-skilled worker who I can hire in my house to do my dishes, um, all the stuff that kind of takes away from me being productive in my job as an economist, you know, do my dishes, wash my car, shine my shoes, cook my food. If I had a servant around the house, I'd be more productive in, in my job. That's a skill complementarity, right? So that's good for me, but it's not good for other servants that are already living here. Right. right. So we, we pretty much know that. So here's the, here's the, the deal here in Canada is that Historically, what we've done is that we've targeted high-skilled immigrants. Okay? We've been able to do that in large part because we don't have porous borders like many countries do. That's, that's kind of a policy luxury. We can control the, the inflow. And so we prioritize high-skilled immigrants. What does that do then? Well, it puts, if anything, pressure on wages, downward pressure on wages, the very top end of the, the distribution. People with the highest wages, like me, maybe, are the ones who get that most downward pressure. That tends to reduce inequality. If you push down wages at the top, that reduces inequality. If, on the other hand, you prioritize low-skilled immigrants, or if your borders are porous and you have large inflows of low-skilled immigrants, that puts pressure on wages at the very bottom end. That tends mm -hmm. to increase inequality. And there's very good evidence you know, empirical evidence, objective, honest evidence that looks across countries and sees in a country like U.S., inequality tends to increase in the, I'm sorry, immigration tends to increase inequality. In a country like Canada or Australia, it does the opposite. Immigration has historically tended to reduce inequality. That's, in my mind, not a bad thing. I mean, I'd rather live in a country where there's less inequality than more. And, and so, you know, what I worry about, a huge part of my criticism of this government's immigration policies is not the level. The 500,000 doesn't worry me. If we do it well, if we're smart about it, I, 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 that's not, you know, my, my primary challenge has always been, or concern has always been with the change in the prioritization towards plugging holes in the labor market with low-skilled workers creating this notion that there's a crisis out there that we don't have enough low-skilled workers and then the, the priority is filling. And every time, once you once you have a target of 500,000, if you prioritize low-skilled workers, say this low-skilled worker is going to come in, conditional on that target, it means a high-skilled worker is not going to get in. And we've seen that in the data. High-skilled applicants are having more difficulty getting PR status today than they did 10 years ago. That's a problem. That's not the trade-off I think we should be making. How big of a problem is there of 
trying to bring in high skilled immigrants and then having them come here and finding that the only jobs that they can get hired for are low skilled jobs. I mean, even with a skills based system, even if we did more accurate predictions, is it just, you know, too much friction to get people into the jobs that they're they should be doing in the way we have, you know, regulations set up here? So selecting those high-skilled immigrants whose earnings are going to be above the average that pull up GDP per capita is a challenge. I think it's the right approach. It's the right target. And once we agree that that's the target, which is not what this government is focused on, but if we agree on that, we can talk about how to do that. And one way to do it is to you know, have a better CRS, comprehensive ranking system that we predict these outcomes better. There are maybe also potential improvements on the settlement side. We have better language training investments for immigrants. We would do a better job of credential recognition. The evidence, unfortunately, is overwhelmingly, when we read the honest evidence, is that the margin on which you're going to improve this most is to do a better, better job of selection. You know, mm-hmm. here's a, here, there's a lots of stats, but one of the ones I find the most compelling is the following. If you look at university-educated immigrants working in the United States who come from India, right, and you look at how what their earnings look like 10 years after they've, they've been in the U.S., and you compare their earnings to American-born workers with university degrees, even working in the same fields, like computer, some computer science field, what you see is those Indian immigrants with university degrees are far outperforming their American-born counterparts. Really? Their earnings are much higher, but 20% higher on average. We have a paper on this in the Journal of Labor Economics. If you do the exact apples-to-apples comparison in Canada, so you take university-educated immigrants from India and you compare them to the Canadian-born workers, with the Indian immigrants are doing far worse. Their earnings are far below the benchmark. Now, Hmm. you can say, well, what's going on there? Is that because the U.S. employers in the U.S. don't discriminate and Canadian employers do? I find that hard to believe. I've certainly never seen any evidence of that that yeah. would make me believe that. Are they better at recognizing foreign credentials? No, because these are mostly the Canadian immigrants have Canadian credentials. We can even restrict attention to those who have university degree from Canada. Right. And we look at the U.S., the, the Indian immigrants have the university degrees from the U.S., and you still get the same result. So it's not a credential recognition problem. It can't be. What it is is something that's uncomfortable to talk about. And I get that. But you know, just because something's uncomfortable to talk about doesn't mean it's not true. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't you know, be careful and sensitive in how we talk about it, but at least recognize the reality. And the reality is, is that selection and self-selection matters a lot. So why does the immigration, why do, why is the U.S. able to attract these incredibly high talented Indian immigrants? One, they have a university infrastructure system that's just out of the world, like beyond anything in any, anywhere else in the world. They attract the creme de la creme of all over the world. The, the innovators, the patent creators, the ones who are driving productivity and economic growth go to the U.S. And then they have an H-1B visa system that allows employers to cream skim the talent pool from Harvard and Princeton and Stanford and MIT. <laughs> That's what they're doing. Um, we struggle with that. In Canada, and, and so the U.S., people know that if you are at the top of your talent distribution, whatever it is you do, you're going to do a lot better in the U.S. than in Canada. Earnings are higher. We know that. We see that with Canadians going to the U.S. If you look at economists, Canadian-born economists working in the U.S., 
One just recently won a Nobel Prize. He hasn't lived in Canada. He's from a farm in Guelph, Ontario, David Cord. Uh, he'd moved to the U.S. My PhD supervisor during my PhD was doing incredibly well. What happened? Went to the U.S. I mean, this is just a reality. In Canada, on the other hand, what ends up happening, again, not a comfortable statement, but if what you instead, what we tend to do, you would think is immigrants who are more worried about whether they're going to fall through the cracks. They know that they're not at the top of the talent distribution. They think, no, I want a comfortable life. I want my kids to have a comfortable life. I don't want to be on the, you know, in the rat race. I don't want to compete in that way. Canada's a much more comfortable place. We got really good public schools. We got good public health care. Kids are going to do well. We got sort of a level playing field for kids through the school system. For sure, that's what I'd want to be in Canada. I do want to be in Canada, probably in part because I tend not to be at the very top of the talent distribution. Hey, I'm same. <laughs> so, so that I think that's a that's a that does not the inference from that is not that we should dismantle our welfare state. Absolutely not. But it's a trade-off. We have to recognize these trade-offs, and that's part of the challenge for Canada. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Do you think that the uh, recent announcement, I guess a couple of days ago, around streamlining past residency for people on H-1B visas in the U.S., bringing in more high-tech talent, is that a an improvement to the system as it stands? Is that more of that is what we should be looking for? So as I was quoted in the in the National Post, I, you know, my response to that was, "Few at long last, the government is doing something to try and leverage skilled immigration to increase true economic growth." Right? At long last, this policy was a re, you know was refreshing for me, and and kudos to the immigration minister. This is if we're going to compete, if we're going to try. Let's set the target. Let's go after it. And this is going in the right direction. Absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, in a ideal world, you know, let's say we're going to pursue this $500,000 or 500,000 person per year target in an ideal world, what needs to change in order to make that work? Is it just, we need to be better at predicting. We need to change the scoring system. What are the sort of two or three top things that we should be doing differently? So the, the first thing you always have to do, like if you're ever a part of a strategic planning initiative, whether it's in a university or a business, the first thing we always do with strate effective strategic planning is we decide on what the objective is. So first, you've got to you know, be very clear. What are we trying to achieve? And setting up you know, a list of 10 or 20 or 100 objectives is not helpful. Because there's something called the Tinbergen rule that teaches us that for every objective, you need at least one policy lever to try and reach that objective. If you've got more objectives than policy levers, you're going to make a muckery of the whole thing. It's just not mm. going to work. Right? So you got to say, this is the objective. In immigration policy, there's only so many levers. In essence, we can control the level and we control the composition, right? The skill composition. There's really just two levers there. And so if you're making a list of we're going to plug all the holes in the labor market, we're going to increase our geopolitical strength, we're going to increase diversity of the population, all wonderful things. Don't get me wrong, but it's just too many objectives. You can't achieve, there's important trade-offs there. You can't achieve them all. So we've got to decide what's the objective. And we argue in this paper we've written is that GDP per capita for economic immigration is the most reasonable objective. We actually put together some kind of ethical argument why we think that's the right objective. 
So if that's the objective, then what I would say to the government, government is focus on that. What now are the policy levers? As I said, there's a levels and there's a composition. In my view, at this, what they've done is they've completely ignored the composition and actually moved towards a way that's you know, lower skilled immigration is going to go in the wrong direction. I would say first, you've got to think about the levels. Does that make sense right now? If we hold the way we're selecting constant, that levels number doesn't make sense. So I would say in the short term, those targets need to be adjusted downward. They're, they're okay. too, for economic immigration. Yeah. I, I really want to emphasize that. We're saying nothing about other programs, but sure. economic immigration, they need to be ratcheted down. And then we need to invest in the CRS. We need to do a better job. I have some ideas, but let me just give you one real quick. Is, sure. you, again, you said it, you want detail. <laughs> so here's an interesting one. Increasingly, the new permanent residents are coming through a pathway where they come as international students. Once they graduate, they get a three-year postgraduate open work permit that says, you know, you can work in Canada for three years. Why do we do that? Well, because it's a testing. It's like a probationary period. If they get a job that's commensurate with their schooling, then they're going to qualify for PR status. Those That job they get is going to give them a lot of points in the CRS system, and they're going to get PR status. Now, you can do a lot better. So here's an example. A lot of those individuals who are coming through the international student streams and then you know getting a postgraduate work permit are going to schools where we know we're seeing these a lot of private colleges, maybe even some public colleges that are sort of exploiting the system, charging very high tuition fees because these international students are willing to pay anything because they want PR status. They don't care about the education they're getting. They just want PR status. So what a, what's happening is a lot of individuals are entering enter, in ending up in the applicant pool whose skills, human capital are not very good. And we're making mm. these people are being selected, but we know a lot about them. We know what school they came from. These are called DLIs, designated learning institutions. We know the history of past graduates of those schools in the past graduates of those schools. How well did they do? What were their earnings like in Canada, Canada, 10 years, 20 years into the future? Why don't we use that information to discriminate between applicants from different schools yeah. um, to say the, the applicants from, you know, if you have a computer science degree from the University of Toronto, history shows that those program graduates do exceptionally well. Why not give them priority in the, in the applicant pool? We don't do that at all. We treat all these graduates, even we don't even look at the field of education. Let me emphasize that. Don't even wow. look at the field of education. Nothing. So it, there, there's a lot of potential for improvement there. Okay, Mikhail, thank you so much. That was a fascinating conversation and learned so much about how this system works. Really appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot, man. Well, that's our episode of Free Lunch by the Peak for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more episodes of Free Lunch by the Peak, just search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to our daily business newsletter at www.readthepeak.com. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And we'll see you next week.